Space, time, and being is what we're going to talk about today with Ajahn Punadamo, who has spent a considerable length of time researching the universe of the early suttas. And it's fascinating. It is a very different universe than the accepted modern universe that we live in. And anybody who's a Buddhist, a meditator, actually needs to know about this stuff. Quite often, Dhamma is presented as a dried-out, desiccated version without the cosmology, which sometimes monks think would disturb the modern mind. (laughs) While we're interested in disturbing your mind, uh, we think it would be beneficial to disturb your minds with a different... uh, well, maybe what we in science is closer to science, science fiction. There are parallel universes. I guess it's not even science fiction anymore. Even even astrophysics talks about parallel yeah, universes. Yeah. But this is quite a rich and amazing topic. So I I really wanted to uh, bring Ajahn Punadamo in. Just tell us a little bit about you. You've been a monk for how long? Twenty-five years. Twenty-five years. Yeah. And so that's a that's a quarter of a century. Yes. Yeah. Has it gone by fast? It has. It's hard to believe it's, it's yeah. been that long. Yeah. And, and you're uh, at Arrow River Hermitage? Yes, that's near uh, Thunder Bay, Ontario. We're a very, very remote, rural kind of place off the grid. Yeah. And you're a Canadian born and raised? Yes. And you are, like, I guess it's, we're a couple of weirdos. We are both... Buddhist monks in Canada. We're both both born and raised in the middle class of Canada, and we're uh, how did we end up like this? <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's a wonderful thing. I, it's a fabulous, fort, great good fortune. But we're we're actually more or less refugees from conventional society. Yeah. And I, like, and what we're going to talk about is this Buddhist universe. And in order to enter this Buddhist universe, you really have to abandon a certain amount of uh, of our educational structures and our cultural yes. structures, right? Yeah. So how when did when did they when were you first permit yourself to contemplate this other worldview system? Uh, that's hard to pin down. I think I've always always had an interest in it, and and I think people. I think it's not only us. I think people in our society generally now are hungry for um, uh, for some kind of mythos. Right. You know, we've lost that in Western culture. Yeah. We used to have like the Greek myths, and yeah. even the Christian myths are falling away. And uh, uh, people go to fictional things like Star Wars and mm-hmm. uh, Harry Potter, and, mm-hmm. and you know then. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings yeah. is a superb example of finding um, finding uh, this this interest, this liveliness in uh, a more a more um, rich tapestry of variation yeah. of being and, and ideas of uh, infinite space and so on. Yeah, it does it confirms something that we suspect. And I think what we suspect is there's something going on here. Yes. And uh, science, or dried out science and pure logic and everything, seems to deny, it seems to be a two-dimensional version of life. And it's out of the corner of our eyes, we occasionally couch this, this yeah. something that suggests there is more going on than is uh, explained in... Uh, more or less contemporary, linear, rational, materialist yeah. uh, philosophies. There's more in heaven and earth a ratio than is dreamt of in <laughs> philosophy. <laughs> ah, there we go. Shakespeare, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, it's it's absolutely enchanting, and maybe that's a very good word because there is, if there is no magic to life, it's uh, well, you see that there lots of people just cancel their policy they they commit they check out they suicide you know mm-hmm. if they don't check out literally that they check out through television or drugs or something like that you know so it's a it's a dangerous thing to deny the enchanted universe yeah 
Mm. So, and of course, we're we're probably not very good at constructing one ourselves. But I think the uh, the fifth century or per earlier of India had the gift. They had mm. the gift. They they knew how to do this. Yeah. We're probably not very good. We're 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 kind of archaeologists. We're kind of trying to rediscover well, how did they yeah. how did they make these things. And it wasn't it wasn't uh, something that somebody sat down and constructed all at once. Of their imagination is built up over centuries. Like the, right. The particular Buddhist version that I've studied is um, really just a snapshot of development that goes back more than a thousand years before the Buddha mm -hmm. of, uh, uh, and carried on after his time with right. elaborations and variations and, uh, it's something that ancient Indians worked on continually uh, yeah so they, they it's, a, it's a living thing that they're processing and and digging out new new significance to it's kind of like a the lyrics of a Bob Dylan song or something. Yeah, you know? yeah, There's yeah. Certain, certain idea. Oh, maybe he meant that. Yeah. <laughs> um, now you said a snapshot that the Buddha, the time of the Buddha, is a snapshot of this larger cosmology, and that what some people jump to a hasty conclusion, perhaps, that the Buddha is merely an inheritor of a prepackaged cosmology which he bought and did not think through critically uh, is is it true or did the buddha select from things and add things to this oh very definitely he did yeah. um, particularly in descriptions of the brahma realms are entirely reinterpreted in the buddhist version yeah um is definitely he was working from a cultural base of what was uh, widely widely held in in ancient India, but the version that the Buddha and um, the commentators after him developed uh, was quite different in in some respects, sometimes subtly subtle nuances. And um, one example, good example, is reinterpretation of the, the ancient Indian figure of Indra. Mm -hmm. in, uh, Indra was the chief of the gods in the Vedic period. Mm -hmm. And he was a warrior god. Mm -hmm. He was like Zeus or, or Thor. You know? mm -hmm. He would wield his thunderbolt and slay demons and so on. Right. So associated with uh, lightning? Yes. Yeah. Yes. He, was, he, he, would, he wielded the thunderbolt, mm -hmm. which is like Zeus. Yeah. Right? And I think there's a very ancient link in all these all, all these pantheons, um, but the, the Buddhist version was Saka, mm -hmm. and it's it's quite it's explicitly identified in some places. Saka and Inda are the same being, and uh, he he was uh, Buddhized by being made uh, to, to incorporate the quality of ahimsa, harmlessness. Ah, there's a story where a princess is captured by a, a, a yaka, who's mm -hmm. an evil demonic being, and the yaka wants her, wants her to, to be his wife, and she refuses, and he says, well, if you if you won't be my wife, you'll serve for my breakfast. <laughs> 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 and uh, she cries out, is, is there no force of goodness in the universe? Mm. And Saka appears and wheels his thunderbolt, and, and uh, the Yaka drops the princess and, and Saka captures him and carries him away over seven mountain ranges and releases him. Oh, he's like a grizzly bear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> catch catch, catch and release. release yeah. <laughs> uh, whereas I'm sure, I'm sure the Vedic Indra would have just blasted Yeah, the, just blasted him. Just blasted the guy and be yeah. done with it. Mm -hmm. There's also um, an epithet in Sanskrit of, of uh, Indra that it's a long compound in Sanskrit that that means something like great, terrible destroyer of cities. Mm -hmm. And Saka has an epithet in Pali, which is a, a related language, um, that changes just a, a very few of the syllables, mm -hmm. and it ends up being great, generous giver of gifts. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful transformation. It's the Buddha's judo on um, prior 
mythology. Yes. Oh, uh, this this name, this yaka. Yeah. Uh, what is a yaka? Uh, yakas are a, cl- a class of being that comes up a lot in the in the sources, yes. and it's rather vaguely defined in in um, in the the word yaka in its most general application simply means a being, and it's used to describe all sorts of beings, but. There is a class of being that is specifically known as yakas. They're mm. they're uh, kind of uh, the closest European um, mythological correlate would be ogres. Mm-hmm. They're sort of ugly, fierce creatures that live in the wild and uh, attack people. And, uh, um, and there, there's a, a number. There's a whole rich mythology around yakas. Mm. And we will hear a lot about yakas probably in our conversations. So we're going to cover three things, space, time, and being. And that gives us a generous um, over, overview. Let's just start talking about space itself, the Buddhist idea of space. And go ahead and tell us about that. Well, the way the way that the uh, early Buddhists conceived of the universe is quite different from the way we currently conceive the universe, mm-hmm. and it's also radically different from the way the um, ancient Greeks and um, medieval Europeans conceived the universe. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an entirely different model. Mm-hmm. The central element of the model is the Chakawala, which uh, is generally translated as world system. Uh, it's a discrete unit. There's an infinite number of them. Hmm. And the the middle of the Chakawala, the central feature, is this gigantic mountain, Mount Sinaru, which is... Um, how, how would you spell it? Just spell that. So S-I-N-E-R-U. Hmm. It's also known in, in um, Sanskrit as Meru or Sumeru. Uh, Pali is Sinaru, and it dominates by far the, mm-hmm. the world system. It's 84,000 yojanas high. Uh, a yojana is about 15 kilometers, and if you do the math, that is a, a greater height than the modern estimate of the distance between the Earth and the Moon. Right? That's a that's a substantial mountain. It's pretty big. <laughs> And around Sinaru are seven ranges of lesser mountains. Mm-hmm. Each one is half the size of the preceding one. Mm-hmm. And there is a, a, a belt of ocean in between each. And then outside the hole, there's a, another much wider belt of ocean. And the whole thing is bounded by a wall. And in this outer ocean, there are four islands and the four cardinal points, north, east, south, and west. And humanity, as we know it, lives on one of these islands, uh-huh. Jampudipa, and only on the southern half of the island. Mm-hmm. Um, so, would that correspond to our uh, what our what we call the Earth? Jampudipa is the Earth, or is it is it a location on the Earth? No, it would correspond to um, the known world. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Asian continent, something well, like that. Well, pretty much India and ah, Enverance, yeah, yeah. right? That's all that they knew. Yeah. And uh, so Jampadipa is described as being triangular in shape because mm-hmm. the Indian subcontinent is mm-hmm. triangular in shape. Yeah. Um, and, th- and this is where human beings as we know them live. Mm-hmm. And a couple of interesting things about this cosmology, I did they or this model of the universe, mm-hmm. uh, I did a comparison between... The modern scientific cosmology, the uh, pre-modern European Ptolemaic mm-hmm. model, and the ancient Indian model, and although it differs greatly in detail, um, in in some key points of spirit, it's the the Ptolemaic model is the odd man out. Mm. Uh, the ancient Indian model, like the modern model, allows for infinite world systems. Like we have solar systems in yes. our modern model, yeah. uh, and there's you know stars like dust, infinite galaxies, mm-hmm. and this is the, the ancient Indian ver- vision was of many many world systems, and, and and in the commentarial period it was defined as being infinite, mm-hmm. 
that the um, each world and they're 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 tightly packed on a plane. So this is quite different than the modern version. Mm-hmm. They're, uh, they're touching each other at at the corners like uh, three cartwheels come together and they mm-hmm. leave a roughly triangular space in the middle. Mm-hmm. So and they spread out horizontally on a plane in all directions. Mm-hmm. And each one of these is inhabited. Each has its four islands and. Mm-hmm. Um, the other point of comparison. So let me just. Okay. There are there are these uh, incalculable numbers of worlds. They also have beings on them. Yes. Today. And yes. so there is a. It's highly populated. Yes. So this is, seems to be. We are now in a phase where we are allowed to contemplate that in modern astrophysics yes. as well. Yes. It used to be. No, no, you, there's nobody else in yeah. the universe but us. But now yeah. science is saying, well, the probabilities are very, very high that there are. Yes. So we're start, starting to merge there. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah, and it's that's really a product of the, the 20th century. I mean, galaxies yeah. were only discovered in the 1930s. Yes, right. Um, I think that the 19th century view of the universe was probably the furthest away from the Buddhist yeah. Conception that you, as you can get, and we've been converging right. back to some ideas that are similar. Yeah, and I, I like to point that out to people that if from when you approach uh, Buddhist cosmology and compare it to science, imagine articulating these ideas of infinite worlds with population in the 19th century, and yeah. the scientific world would have just dismissed this as ridiculous. Yes. Yes. And but by the time we get into the late twentieth century, it was they would be saying, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when you compare this to linear science, science is a continuous process of change and expansion and so forth. So we we don't want to get we want to open our mind, allow our minds to be open to this. Mm. This is quite amazing how this mm. is these things are converging, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. The other point of contact is the idea that of the place of human beings as we know them in in the universe. In the medieval European version, the Earth is at the center, mm-hmm. and human beings are at the center of the universe, the most important place, and everything is built around them. Mm-hmm. In modern vision, Earth is just one small planet and one minor dwarf star at the edge of one galaxy you know it's not a central position at all and this is like the ancient indian vision in this island of jampadipa on which we live is a speck in the whole chakawala Mm -hmm. if you and i've done this i've drawn it to scale Mm -hmm. and sinaru the mountain dominates the the picture and and the islands are just like little specks in Mm -hmm. the corners so we live on one half of one speck in this thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and other classes of beings live on the slopes of Sinaru and on the peak. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're in a minor place in, physically in, in, in the cosmos. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think sets, I, I, I think this, um, how, how people perceive their cosmological universe, in one sense, it seems sort of, far removed from daily concerns. Like mm-hmm. you're going to have to plow the field and chop the wood, regardless mm-hmm. of whether the world is flat or square, mm-hmm. or, you know. But um, I think it sets a background mood to the culture and the civilization. Yeah, how you perceive your place in the universe. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> let's just talk a little bit about time as well. We're just uh, doing a very brief overview and we will get into extensively into the details of this. I, I really think it's so under um, underexposed in the West. So mm. we're going to spend all leisurely amount of time on all of these details. Okay. Give us an overview of the the Buddhist uh, sense of time. Uh, this is another area in which there's a radical departure from the pre-modern view and a somewhat of a convergence to the modern view uh, in the West because the, the ancient Indian view and, and as um, processed by the Buddhists was always a very vast ranges of time mm-hmm. whereas the, the pre-modern Europeans thought the world was 6,000 years old mm-hmm. right? 
the Buddhists talk in terms of kalpas of time, huge, vast stretches of time that can't cannot be easily calculated in in years or so many years. You know? mm-hmm. And uh, if there's an extension backwards and forwards into infinity that world systems come and go. Mm-hmm. It's given world system has a finite lifespan, but the the universe as a whole is continually as universes as world systems are destroyed, new ones arise. Mm. Um, and and that's very in line with contemporary astrophysics now, isn't it? Yeah, well, there's one, certainly, uh, that, that there's a debate in modern modern astrophysics as to whether um, there's an infinite series of universes or whether there's, you know, Big Bang and... and the only Big Bang. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, this is sort of a side point, but it, uh, it's interesting to contemplate this idea of the Big Bang and where did the universe come from like, oh, what caused this mm-hmm. um, in in the Buddhist model what uh, generates the new universe is the kama of those beings dying in the old universe mm. they still if they're not fully enlightened they still have outstanding kama to take rebirth yeah. and there's no place for them to appear unless they generate a universe fabulous that it, it hooks the material universe into the core issues of of the human moral universe yes uh, we, we don't make this a blank amoral uh, material uh, universe as a as a dominant truth we they say that it's the meaning in human life that has to be featured and everything else is framed in that concept yes yes Let's go to the third part of space, time, and being. Mm. And when we talk about being, we're talking about a very rich description of multiple layers of consciousness and beings. Yes. Uh, so so rich that modernity seems to be absolutely deprived mm-hmm. <laughs> when we compare it. Mm-hmm. So go ahead and talk about some of this notions of being uh, well there are different ways of classifying the the number of beings in the universe the different grades of beings mm-hmm. uh, a broad uh, first approach is between three uh, three worlds or three planes the, the plane of sense desire mm-hmm. the plane of form and the plane of the formless the plane of sense desire includes human beings but it also includes animals hell beings ghosts and devas mm-hmm. uh, the sensual gods so this is the most diverse and the most uh, complex and, and variegated mm-hmm. of the levels it's also the furthest away from uh, the unconditioned mm. from liberation mm. it's it, because it's caught in so many layers of stuff mm-hmm. that we're caught in the beings at this level a, a unifying characteristic of them is that they re- primarily relate to the universe through the five senses and their experience is mediated by those senses mm-hmm. and their motivations and their thoughts and their desires center around those those senses right the senses of sight sound smell taste and touch yes yeah yeah um, then the the realm of form, the rupa loka, and it's called that to distinguish it from the realm of the formless. The realm of form are beings who have transcended sensuality, but they still have physical bodies. They still have form. These are the, uh, chiefly the brahma gods. They're a, a higher level of being than the, the devas. <laughs> And they've gone beyond sensuality altogether, so they, they're not divided into genders. There's mm-hmm. no male, and, male or female known there. They're just mm-hmm. all reckoned as beings. Mm-hmm. And and they don't take uh, physical food. They feed on bliss. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So, so internally generated energy, they're, mm-hmm. they're self-contained in that way. 
there's they're still subject to some defilement, particularly of pride and, and wrong view. I see. And attachment to being. So it might be proud of their own uh, station in the the hierarchical yes. structure of being. That yes. They are of a higher nature than the, the sensuous creatures. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, and then there's the third level is the realm of the formless, which is quite interesting to contemplate is these are beings with mind only, no mm. physical form whatsoever. Ah. Right? Uh, so we, we generally conceive and talk and talk about these levels in a kind of vertical hierarchy. Mm-hmm. But I also think a useful model for contemplating them is a kind of a circular bullseye model. You have mm-hmm. the, the unconditioned perfection at the center. Mm-hmm. And the formless is like samsara at a bare minimum mm-hmm. no they're just in existence but mm-hmm. just barely and then as you take on as you go further from the center you take on more complications more stuff mm-hmm. more defilement more problems and you're further away and it's harder to uh, conceive of uh, of the unconditioned right. the, the, the bodily element becomes coarser and more prominent Yes, the, the, and the, yes. all the complex issues come that come with the body, and all these forms of ailments and illnesses, and the, the very lumbering nature of a, yeah. of a physical body having you transported in gravity. Yes, versus this hard to conceive of the mind only. Uh, I, I suppose in like sci, sci-fi and Star Trek and things like this that they have. Uh, maybe they even have been influenced by Buddhist ideas, mm-hmm. but we, I guess with the computer world, cyberspace, and so forth, it's kind of also like we're we're talking about a non-material realm, but yeah. there's 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 yeah. thought and processes in it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah there's some. Yeah, there there there's some amazing. Uh, some modern physicists talk about the the the, the 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 ultimate reality of the universe is information. Yes, and I, I like I've been contemplating that as well. I mean, <clears throat> part of this cosmology is that uh, this really needs to be. What practical uh, use can we make of this? We we have to. And what I mean by practical is, can this be emotionally transformative? Is this helpful mm. to our psychology? Mm. And that's what what I I always try to uh, ask myself now. How can I milk this? Mm. for greater joy, greater happiness, mm. greater understanding. Mm. So what do you think about this use of the Buddhist universe? Oh, yeah. I think there's a lot of um, a lot of ways that uh, that, that applies. Uh, one example that I, I have found most useful and transformative in my own practice is contemplating the nature of the Brahma realms. Mm-hmm. Because the uh, consciousness of the Brahma gods is the equivalent of the mind in jhana, mm-hmm. which is the meditative absorption that one gains through samadhi. And uh, for someone who has not experienced jhana, it can be difficult to describe it or or visualize it, yes. get an idea. Uh, and one way that is 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 a very useful approach is to think of it as a phase shift in consciousness mm. from sense desire realm to realm of form mm-hmm. uh, so you're dropping away from all the sensual realm experience now here's here's like one practical way it applies in you're developing meditation if someone's sitting in meditation trying to get samadhi you can uh, notice uh, whenever your thoughts and your um, emotive states are relating to the sense realm mm-hmm. and try and divorce yourself from that or transcend that. And it's even things like just feeling uncomfortable in the body, you're feeling stiff or mm-hmm. cold or, you know, that's relation to sense experience. So yeah. you say, well, this is irrelevant to what I'm doing now and disregard it. Mm-hmm. And try and... Uh, transcend this experience of, of the senses, then you, you've done, done a phase shift into the equivalent consciousness of a Brahma god. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so these are not just abstract stories. This is something that 
personally may become you in in some sense that's one of your options is to enter into these the realms of the brahma gods mm-hmm. or into heaven yeah in in this very life as as well this is not this is entered through not just consciousness but uh, emotion isn't it like there's yes. this quality of joy yes and uh, and ease and transcendence of the body. So this is yeah. a, a whole being entrance. It's not just yeah. a intellectual entrance. Yes, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Right. So that's. Uh, I mean, we will try to make all of this. We'll flesh it in. I mean, academics might be describing the the Buddhist universe in this dry academic way. Um, and academic, the very word academic is, is inherited from Greek thinking. Uh, but we're interested in making this alive. We're, we're actually entering into a different universe, which has different priorities. And as monks, we're, we're trying to <clears throat> bring these ideas in as help to one's practice as well. Mm. Okay, so I think I'd like to travel through these beautiful and amazing realms of being. And I think it would be appropriate if we started closest to the earth with this realm, which seems to be both apparent to the eye and ear sometimes, sometimes to the nose as well, the smell of, (laughs) of these other beings. And at the same time, they seem to have a realm of their own which they can retreat into. They're half half in our realm and half out of our realm. And it brings a new uh, nuance to the this uh, pursuit and, and understanding of these beings. So, and this is usually called the realm of the four great kings. And so, Puna, just talk a little bit about this realm of the four great kings. Tell us where it is. <laughs> okay. Uh, this this is the uh, lowest of the heaven realms. There are mm. six sensual heavens. Mm. And the first two are still in physical contact with the earth. Mm. Uh, uh, the realm of the four great kings is native places located halfway up the slopes of Mount Sinaru. Mm. And the four kings are the... Uh, guardians and lords of the four directions north, east, northeast, west and south uh-huh. and they are um, subject to the Saka, the king of the gods on the peak of Mount Sinaru in the mm. Tawatinsa heaven but they also face towards the earth and they have a host of lesser dewas that are within their realm and also all these other Beings, various classes of beings such as Yakas, Nagas, Supanas, Kanaras, there's a whole wide range of them that, <laughs> that are subject to the four great kings and follow their commands. Wow. Um, let's, so tell how, what do these things look like? What are the, what's their, what, why are they, there are four different aspects to them? So what's what's their physical configurations? Uh, of the four great kings or of all these lesser beings? Uh, any any of the above. Well, the four great kings are Dewas, so they have mm-hmm. an anthropomorphic form. Mm-hmm. They're human looking. Um, but they're very they're also described as being very large. All the Dewas are Three quarters of a yojana, and that would be inside. that would be um, ten kilometers wow. in size. You know, yeah. Um, although when they manifest, there's stories where they wasn't interact with human beings. They mm-hmm. manifest in a human size form. They seem to be able to control their shape and they, form. They, they do. present themselves yes. in various guises. Yes. That's somewhat understandable. Is this something like uh, Einstein talking to a? Uh, a class of of eight year olds, um, he would try to present himself in a in yeah, a way that's that a, they would understand. That's a good way of putting yeah, it. They, yeah. they, when they manifest, 
it's, it's a rule of the it's a it's a generally rule of the universe that beings on a higher beings cannot ordinarily perceive any class of beings higher than themselves right. unaided but the higher beings can sometimes assume a grosser form a yeah. coarser form deliberately to manifest right to to lower beings so we have all these classes of, of uh, creatures or beings that um, dwell in various places on the earth and in on, on Mount Sinaru and on the various islands, such as Nagas, who are dragon-like serpent beings, mm-hmm. Yakas, who are like ogres or f- these kind of fierce, monstrous beings. Um, would, would the Sasquatch, the uh, Yeti, the Abominable Snowman yeah. fit into that category? Yeah, I would think that uh, you know, if an ancient Indian saw a Sasquatch, you would identify it as a yaka. Yeah, that would be the that yeah. would be the type of of manifestation that they would perceive. You see them in, in Thai art. Yakas are are usually shown as having these ferocious dog-like faces with big lower canine teeth sticking uh-huh. up. You know? Yeah, they're kind of monstrous, ogre-like beings. Um, then there's a uh, Canaras that are little like uh, wood elves ah yeah. I um, hadn't even heard that term before Canaris Canaris uh, yeah. which is a country that, that, that's a curious they're they're very curious creatures they if the, the word is a contraction of Kimparisa which means is it human is a human I, is it human question is mark. it is it human question mark. yeah king like uh, as a question yeah yeah right yeah. human or not yeah <laughs> fantastic uh, uh, and they're they're like Elves or pixies, you know, and not not in the sort of um, Tolkien-esque sense of elves as these kind of noble beings, but more in this kind of like little fairies that live in the forest mm-hmm. that that are that are quite harmless. And um, uh, the stories about them generally tend to be that they're uh, center. One of the things is they they pair bond for life. Oh. They, they male and female they love each other so much. If they're separated, they pine away. Ah. Uh-huh. You know? Um, then there's a really funny sort of creature called a uh, kumbanda mm-hmm. that, uh, that they're sort they're another sort of minor minor deity or minor being that that is characterized by having enormously large testicles. <laughs> <laughs> they, that they, uh, they use them as seats. They, if they walk around, they have to throw them over their shoulders. <laughs> I can imagine uh, Victorian scholars coming across this uh, Indian cosmology and having having problems representing it in a censored society. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're I, in a different we're in a different yeah. and more liberal and maybe more realistic sort of realm there. Yeah. Perhaps it had to wait till our time before you could talk about something that sat on its own testicles. <laughs> <laughs> I, I found that out when I was doing some translating of some of these stories that. Some of the previous translations that have been done in the early 20th century are quite censored. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, it's a it's a different. It's almost it's kind of like the 17th century in Europe. It's a more <clears throat> uh, body yeah. kind of, uh, and then it became more uptight and conservative towards the 19th century. Yeah, yeah and the ancient Indians weren't. Weren't squeamish about <laughs> anything <them> whatsoever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's fantastic. Uh, any other beings? Are they, how about the in the bird realm? Yeah, the supanas. Supanas are uh, gigantic birds that have a wingspan of uh, hundreds of yojanas. Oh, yes. massively big. Massive. And when they can flap their wings and cause storms and mm. hurricanes at sea and so on. Mm-hmm. And they're the inveterate enemies of the Nagas. They feed on Nagas. Mm. The uh, Nagas are the serpent beings. Mm-hmm. The um, the Supanas will attack them and devour them. And there's many stories about the rivalry between Nagas and Supanas. And you see this in the in the in our animal realm, the eagle and the cobra. Yeah. Uh, the eagle and the rattlesnake yeah. are also enemies, and yeah. sometimes when they tangle, sometimes the co- the the rattlesnake wins, yeah. 
And sometimes the eagle winds takes it up and drops it and so forth. Uh, yeah, so that you see this as a kind of a minor uh, manifestation. Now, perhaps Western people would, modern Western people would think that these are just stories um, describing animal behavior, but from a Buddhist point of view, as we get more into this cosmology and sort of immerse in it, it's entirely possible though that these this other dimension of being maybe has if they pass away from that realm that they they may end up as a kind of lesser version of themselves as an mm. eagle mm. and as a snake and that they're still carrying over this characteristic this war that goes yeah. on between the snake yeah. and the bird you know yeah even even to the extent of the bird and the worm you know like mm. so kind of a, mm. yeah um, yeah, that's a fantastic thing. Now, these are immense sizes. I remember yes. reading about, uh, uh, say, in the suttas, that there are creatures in the ocean that are a thousand yojanas yes. long and so forth, yeah. like this. And uh, at first, of course, with my Western mind, I, think, uh, I know about blue whales and so forth. But as I thought about it, I thought, well, there are actually creatures in the ocean that long. And one of them is... A school of fish, mm. or, or a coral reef. A coral reef is exactly a, a almost a single being, mm. hundreds of miles long. So we mm. have to say now, how else would you want to describe a coral reef, especially mm. in the fifth century BC or even mm. earlier? They would be vividly alive. I mean, mm. we, we've we've destroyed them to some degree, but the in Intense. You can imagine sailing out into the ocean, even off the coast of Canada, when the mm. Europeans arrived. They said you could almost step out of the ship and mm. walk on the back of the cod. Yeah. They were inexhaustible yeah. in numbers. Yeah. And they were something like a single being. And this mm. is what they've discovered with uh, the cod depletion, is that it's not just a matter of individuals. They, they, they actually function as a as a single be the mm. large a group as a single being mm. and you have to have a quorum mm. to sustain survival mm. so all of these things are uh, other ways of uh, understanding these things what a, in in what way do can we use this um, be uh, other realm can we use it just as enchantment um, or a relationship to the nature around us, or uh, I think that is that is uh, true. The, our relationship to the natural world uh, is is pro- as we know the, is pr- currently problematic. We're destroying uh, a lot of the natural world with our um, expanding civilization yeah because and and I think part this part of the psychic reason for that is because we've lost touch with with it as a living yeah. thing you know we're seeing it in a dry mechanical way right it's all dead yeah so it doesn't matter what you do with it whereas if the if the world is peopled with all these miraculous beings yeah. then um, there's a there's a uh, more of a harmony, um, more of a respect for the natural world, mm-hmm. and it's also less loneliness. I mean, if yes. you're in a, if you're in a yes. world that is just populated by multiple dimensions around, whether you can see them or not, you're you're never alone. You're always in the company, and you can communicate with these. And sometimes they're communicating with you as well. Yeah. So this is this is very. I think that the modern mind is is alienated alone mm. in a dead world it's like yes last man on a desert island you know like, yes uh instead of being in a lush garden yeah. you know with with all its complexities as well like yeah. uh there's a lot of ins and outs of dealing with nagas and garudas and oh yeah you have to be very careful you have to be <laughs> very careful with these beings yeah, yeah. you don't yeah, want to like, step over the lines like the nagas are gen- for example are generally um beneficent uh-huh. but they're prickly and proud <laughs> and if you do something to uh to offend them yes you know they can be very destructive <laughs>
So we're planning on our expedition moving up the side of Mount Sinaru systematically higher and higher. We've graduated from the realm of the four great kings, the lowest of the heavens that seems to be merging with the human earth realm. And we'd like to move up into the next realm of the devas, which is what? Which is uh, Tawatingsa, which means the 33. It's a uh, realm ruled by a council of 33 devas, Mm -hmm. uh, chief of whom is Saka. Mm -hmm. And this uh, realm is located at the peak of Mount Sinaru. And Saka is in, in a limited sense, he is the supreme being of this world system. There, there are there are realms higher than him, and he knows that he's not ignorant of that, and he's not considered in any way a creator, but he's the governor or the overlord of this world system. Uh, this particular realm uh, is, I think, it's the pantheon of gods that we see in different versions in Greece and in the Norse myths and in the ancient Indian Vedic stories. This is the particular realm of these gods that inter, inter, uh, intervene occasionally on the earth mm-hmm. and uh, have their own place. They, they, they intervene in the human uh, realm. They yes. have an interest in it. Yes, Saka will occasionally manifest particularly Saka, he'll, yes. he'll manifest on the earth in human form and intervene in different... Mm-hmm. They're sometimes quite selfishly. Mm-hmm. He's sometimes afraid that some human uh, ascetic is practicing austerities and meditation and gaining too much kind of good merit uh-huh. and will end up becoming the new Saka. Mm-hmm. This is another thing to bear in mind with the um, Buddhist gods and cosmology mm-hmm. is they're not immortal. No mm-hmm. being is no being is immortal in the Buddhist system, uh, and Saka is in some sense uh, more of a title of a office that's held by a particular being. And when mm-hmm. a Saka has um, come to the end of his lifespan, he will die from that existence, and a new Saka will arise. So there'll always be a Saka. Right. Is this similar to you know kings that are? Uh, have long reigns perhaps, but uh, eventually they die and a new king is... Yeah, the king is dead, long live the king. Long live the king, yes. Yeah. Um, and Yeah, so this uh, Saka has a retinue of uh, people who are beings which are uh, uh, in service to him? Yes, yeah, there's the... At the, the uh, Center of power are the, are the 33 gods mm-hmm. that are, the, which we don't have, nowhere do we have a complete list of these 33 gods. Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly the names of, of all 33. We know some of them. Um, and then there's a multitude of devas that live in Tawatinksa. And then there are class, there are classes of lesser devas that are like the, the uh, servants and entertainers. There's the Acharas, the dancing girls, mm-hmm. the, um, and uh, the Gandabas, the musicians. Yes. The heavenly harpers. Yes. It's amazing that the some of the Christian structures, although they're somewhat impoverished compared to the Buddhist, the richness of the, and, and detail of Buddhist yeah. uh, heaven structures, the what you find in the New Testament, everything is just a just a sketch of yeah, very yeah. Tawat thinks it's described in some detail yeah. with pleasure parks and gardens and uh, ponds. Right, and the gods live in uh, what what are called wimanas. Yeah, it's usually translated as mansion, but they're they're um, they're mobile. Mm. They fly through the air. Ah, um, well, this will make some people's ears prick up. As yes, about, like uh, are these what? Are these the UFOs that we see from time to time? Oh yeah, that has been suggested by some that <laughs> yes. the Wamanas of the gods. Right? Yeah, that, this is also a pre-Buddhist idea: the Wamanas of the gods, uh-huh. these kind of flying palaces that they live right. in. The sun and the moon are considered to be Wamanas. The gods dwell within the they're, sun. And they're the moon. they're dwelling places. Yes, and pos- and they they partake of. Uh, 
are they? Uh, this is a bit off the track, but uh, are these are the sun and the moon conscious in some ways, or are they just locations of consciousness? Well, there are uh, beings that the, the sun and the moon themselves are not conscious. They're wamanas, but mm-hmm. they're beings that dwell within. Uh-huh. So the the sun is Surya, mm-hmm. is the Pali for sun, and um, it's sometimes distinguished between Surya and Surya Dewa. Mm-hmm. Surya Dewa is the the chief of the Dewas that live in the sun, ah. and you know he is a retinue of followers right. that, that that live within the sun as as well. And of course, I mean, on just in a literal way, the sun we're we're dependent on the sun for for everything, and, and any human. Sometimes we're because we're so scientific and everything, it's hard to imagine this. But the moment we step out of a cold, clammy wet place and into the sunlight we mm. all become sun worshippers we're all yeah, yeah. highly appreciative we, we treat it as if it was the abode of the gods yeah and we're we're happy to have experience its abundance its its secondary abundance and it illuminates and cheers us and all kinds of things yes. we have a conscious connection with the sun we and when we lose that when we diminish that uh, we we lose an option to just you know see children really respond to the sun they don't they yeah. have any ambitions about it they just dance and yeah. and stare and yeah. want to you know so as adults we we think of it as this nuclear ball in the sky mm. but it diminishes us to to think mm. about it that way doesn't it you know? yeah would, uh, we don't have that that heart connection mm. with with uh, with the uh, outer universe anymore now this is this brings up um, as long as we're on this kind of uh, digression about the sun mm-hmm. and the moon, this brings up an interesting point about the ancient Indian cosmology, is that uh, a different in a difference in approach and spirit from the from the Greeks and the Europeans, the Greeks and the Europeans developing you know uh, their vision of the universe that carries on into modern times is is all based on observation of the movement of the stars and planets and the uh, sun and the moon mm-hmm. and attempts to account for that. As th- that doesn't seem to have been bothered the ancient Indians very much. The, the, the model from a, uh, a narrowly practical scientific point of view, the model of the sun and the moon moving, uh, ha- they, they, they exist at half the height of Sinaru. And night is when they cross behind Sinaru. Mm. And it really doesn't take too much observation of the movements, both the daily and annual movements of the sun and the moon, to figure out this doesn't work very well. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't seem to bother the ancient Indians. They, right. they, they, weren't, they weren't so much trying to explain the observed movements of the stars and planets. Right. So yeah, let me think Similarly, that this is kind of like a musician who now there's two two kinds of ways, and the Greeks came at this like music they described mathematically as the division of strings into certain lengths and so forth. Yes. And I, you know, actually I was a musician before I, and one of the th- courses I took was the physics of music. I, I did quite well in, 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 because it's a very linear kind of thing, but it has nothing to do with music. Yeah, 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 <laughs> no. yeah. And so the yeah. let me say that the Indian cosmology is about music, and the Greeks are about the physics of music. Mm. And so, in some ways, we got off on the wrong track there because mm. you can't you you can't live on physics. Yeah, <laughs> you live on the magic of music, mm. and the fact that it that, that yes, you can sort of explain how these sounds are created really is. Is not what music is. Mm. It isn't a bunch of vibrating strings. It's a feeling that you experience, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, this is something very important to people that that they must allow the enchantment of the universe, the the appreciation, the emotional experience of this. Mm. This is this is music and art, not a dry science experiment, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yes, yes. And I I also think approaching. Approaching these um, uh, cosmological descriptions, I, I think the best way to approach it is to try and take it on its own terms, mm-hmm. uh, to, to try and put yourself in that 
uh, imaginative space. Yeah. Uh, I don't like some of the um, modern tendency to either, either on one hand, some uh, commentators on this stuff will attempt to psychologize everything. Mm-hmm, yeah. See, see it as all kind of analogs for psychological things. The other approach is to try and twist it to make it fit modern science, mm-hmm. which I also think is misguided. Yeah. 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 There's uh, my eventual uh, approach is to stop discounting it all and just literalize it first. Just enter that world as we yes. do with the movie. Like we don't yeah, yeah. ruin the movie by saying, "Hey, this is on a flat screen." Yeah. That's yeah. a play of light. That just like ruins everything. <laughs> Yeah. Right off the bat, you yeah. you the the truth will emerge from it. Yeah. But you don't want to be too hasty. And of course, uh, the more educated we get, the more in, interpretive and symbolic and psychologizing we get. But it, yeah. it quite often ruins the story. <laughs> yeah. It? And the story yes. is is reality something other than a story, mm. or is it a story? And if if we if we don't if we have a barrier between us and a story, then we're we're not going to experience it, are we? Quite so. And one of the questions people often ask me about this is, how much of this is real? Yeah. And to me, that's an extremely naive question. Yeah. You always, I always want to turn it back and say, how much of this world yeah. that we, our daily mundane world, is right. real? And what do you mean by real? Yeah. I often ask them, is New York City real? Because... I've had all. I've been there myself, and I've heard descriptions of other people who've been there, and they're not the same place. Yeah. So, is there really a New York City, or not? And of course, there really is multiple New York cities, mm-hmm. and they are immersions, and they require different levels of consciousness mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So, yeah, there is. Uh, there is literally no there, there's literally no New York City, but there is a there is New York City. <laughs> the, the Zen the Zen master Dogen, mm. uh, in his Heart and Mountain Sutra, he talks about the various realms, and uh, he puts it all down to perception. Mm-hmm. This is a river to a um, to a human being. A river is is clean flowing water. Mm-hmm. To a being in the ghost realm, it's a uh, it's a filth mm-hmm. to a, a being in the hell realm it's molten lava mm-hmm. to a naga it's crystal palaces mm-hmm. yeah but, so where is the real river yeah yeah so aside from the cosmology which we're going to explore in great detail I want to give Punadama a little opportunity to Describe what it's like to spend five years immersed mm. in the research of Buddhist uh, realms mm. and the Buddhist universe to immer- to fully immerse yourself in that in a sustained mm-hmm. way. And of course, you live out in the middle of nowhere in the hermitage and so forth and long periods of nature and silence and mm. winters and crackling wood stoves and it's quite a quite a vision to see the monk bent over his books immersed in this in the in, in enormous lengths of silence and low sensory experience how is how is this process looking back over the last five years and this is all culminated in a in a book of, mm-hmm. of something like 600 pages long uh how has the what's the experience of this mm. this being yeah. like? Tell us a little bit about that. Your in, inner life. Uh, well, I think the I could the first thing that comes to mind to say is that uh, by uh, entering imaginatively into this this uh, world, then I've come to understand the human condition. In, the, in this mundane world, better by comparison. That's when you step out. When you're when you're in the in something, you can't necessarily understand it as well as if you step outside and look at it from the outside. And this uh, particular human condition that we're in is really only one variation possibility of uh, 
constellation of factors of consciousness and mental formations and bodily form. And there are uh, an infinite variety of other possibilities. And stepping outside of that and even imaginatively, and you get a new perspective. On, it's like climbing a hill and looking down onto the town mm-hmm. from above. You, you mm-hmm. see the layout of the town, you understand it differently than if you're in the streets. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And you need, to, you need to really have both perspectives alternately to fully understand it, um, you know, a state of being. Mm-hmm. So, so this human realm is one placement in, in the sense-desire existence. And just remaining within the senses of our existence, we can look down into the realms of greater suffering, or we can look up to the Dewa realms of greater pleasure and enjoyment. And you understand something different about sensuality, looking at it that, because you see the refinement of sensuality in the Dewa realms. It's increasingly refined and subtleized. Mm-hmm. Um, and you understand suffering differently, looking down into the increasingly... Uh, intense forms of suffering that are possible in, in, in lower forms of consciousness. So we find we, we can appreciate this balance in the human realm, where we are and what the comparisons are. And then stepping outside the sense-desire realm into the realm of the Brahma gods, again, a whole new perspective. That This is quite different. Like the, 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 deva, the sensual devas are closer to us in many ways than they are to the Brahma gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Brahma gods are quite different and uh, have transcended the whole mess of biology, you know, mm-hmm. uh, both the pleasurable and painful aspects of biology. They've transcended all that mm-hmm. and they're living in a very refined existence. Mm-hmm. And then the realm of the formless you transcend physical form altogether mm-hmm. and this is a, a very intriguing thought experiment is trying to imagine existence as a formless being mm-hmm. yeah. do you think for the ordinary person to deeply explore this could be a little dangerous to their mental health <laughs> I don't no I, I don't I don't think so I'll, I'm you know, not the ordinary person I'm who knows, there might be somebody who's already unhinged and <laughs> this is all it takes to tip them over the edge. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, I think the ordinary person, I think it's very beneficial. Uh, we, we hunger, we hunger for that kind of mythos. You right. see you see that uh, people in, in um, the mass culture, things like Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Star Wars, yeah. you know, they, they, they create a mythos that people love that. Well, they they want that they hunger for that because we've lost that in Western culture. Yes. We used to have the Greek myths, and uh, that's pretty well. Most people pretty well don't know Homer or any of mm-hmm. that, and and um, even the Christian stories that were uh, uh, the Bible stories that were a bedrock of the culture for a long time are yes. are gone. There's a friend a friend of mine had took his he was visiting another city and he took his teenage. Uh, daughter to he wanted to check out he was interested in the architecture he wanted to look into inside of a church and they went inside the church and she saw uh, Jesus on the cross and she said daddy who's that that gunshot victim (laughs) (laughs) well that's true this is the in the last while this is the first generation has not even been exposed to spiritual realities at all yeah, um, yeah, most of us sort of went to church and then dropped out and went and whatever. But we got some exposure to it. But there's a whole it's a, yeah. quite an experiment that a new generation will have never even heard of this stuff. Yeah, they might not even. I actually uh, I taught a, a, a some gave a talk on Buddhism to a grade eight class, 106, 180 grade eights, and I asked them, you know, uh, who knows who. Anybody know who Socrates is? And how many, you know, very small person. Who's the Canadian Prime Minister? <laughs> Most of them didn't know. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Jesus. Most of them had heard of Jesus. Uh, the Buddha. Actually, they'd heard of the Buddha, hmm. but they didn't know much about any of this stuff. Yeah. So they'd heard these names. Yeah. I also asked them, "What year is this for you?" 
and they were all stonewalled. They they couldn't imagine what I was asking. What do you mean? What year is this for us? It's it was I think it was twenty two thousand and eight or something like that. And they just they couldn't understand what I was asking. I said, well, because for me it's twenty five forty three, and they were like, Star Wars or <laughs> uh, no? Because it's all. You're, and then then they started to get oh I see and then I asked them why is it the year 2008 mm. and then they had to they're they're 13 years old they had to figure out why it's 2008 and then they, they eventually came up with the answer it's from the time of Jesus they say how many of you are Christian how many you go to church and only about you know 10 percent of the class actually went to church mm. so but you're all you're all living in a in some remnant culture. You know, mm, you're a part yeah. of a culture that you that even the very you 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 have never questioned why is it the year 2008. <laughs> mm. Mm. So we're immersing ourselves into these things, and quite I really believe that the there, there there's mental ill health if you don't immerse yourself in these, mm. that if you don't uh, enter into these realms. But you've been absolutely up to your neck in this. Mm. And often Western monks don't know much about these, this whole cosmology. They're very interested in the their left nostril, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> breath meditation. Mm. So it's a beautiful thing. This is why we want to do these talks and and offer on the video so that people understand this is not just an abstract part. This is not a secondary part. This is something that. Uh, allows you to be much more whole and complete, and these stories are actually necessary and and not stories. Mm. Yeah. So this is just an opportunity to appreciate uh, Ajahn Punadamo. I have, for the last few months, been it's been on my mind to get a hold of him, and I wondered how what the opportunity is because we live on other sides of the country, but we're here together, so. We took this opportunity to start our series on uh, the Buddhist universe, and uh, Ajahn Punadama was quite happy and willing, and has been a absolutely a fountain of knowledge and eloquence, and uh, I really appreciate this opportunity to share this precious knowledge. And uh, appreciation for for Ajahn Punadamo and for his upcoming book, which everybody should uh, uh, be interested in. We it doesn't it doesn't you haven't got a final title for it. No, it's uh, but um, it's it's about it's it's actually the title will be. But the books the books written and it's in the I'm, I'm working with a publisher just the final editing right now. The final editing. The door to another universe is about to open for you, the viewer. Soon it shall appear. So always be inquiring when and where do I get it. So thank you very much. I appreciate this.